immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Hello, and welcome to Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 62. With me, Oliver Cadell, Monica Bowles, and Bjorn Jacobson. Hey, guys. How are you today? Hello. Busy. Very busy. That's very good. But good. Yeah. Wrapping up a couple of things, and then I um, I shouldn't have said yes, but I t- promised a friend that I would help out with something that he needed to be done. So it's going to be a long night tonight after this podcast. We're currently discussing Unreal 5 changes and if we should stick with middleware or meta sounds. It's a um, very heated debate that gets fanboys fighting fanboys. It's quite um, quite fun. It's a debate that's worth capturing on tape and sharing with the audience because it's certainly uh, a conversation I've come across uh, very recently and probably not the last time. <laughs> no, but you should see the... The forums about Unreal Engine Five. It's it's quite it's quite difficult to navigate sometimes. Not because of there's lots of relevant information, but there's also, as there typically is on forums, a lot of people who blindly stare into oh this is awesome and everything else is just bollocks now. So it's it's kind of difficult to to navigate what's right and what's wrong. So I've sort of hooked up with some other audio professionals that I can discuss this with. So, From uh, Meta Sounds in Unreal 5 to uh, Snowy Mountains in Colorado. Uh, Monica, I know you've been having some time off, uh, all things spatial audio. Uh, tell us about your trip. I am doing well. I was actually up in the mountains snowboarding, so... I, I did go up to, I went up to Colorado, but um, there are mountains in New Mexico. Um, some very good ones, actually. There's uh, the Taos Ski Valley. Um, it's a Pretty awesome and challenging mountain. Not 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 a, a lot of spatial audio last week, but um, glad to be here today. I will be helping uh, co-host the Nodam Spatial Audio Meetups again this year, um, or for the spring uh, period of time. So they're going to be starting um, starting up in the near future, and they will be running through June. They're on Wednesdays, um, usually. Uh, 11 a.m. my time. I think it's more 7 p.m. Oslo time. Um, and uh, I will we'll provide a link and you can, you know, if you want to join. It's really just a space to come and talk to other people that are interested in spatial audio. We have some really amazing people. That's actually how Oliver and I initially met. Um, so we'd love to have some other people that maybe listen to this podcast uh, come and hang out and talk about spatial audio with us. We have two very special guests, Nikunj Raghuvanshi, who's a senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research Division, and Noel Cross, who's a principal dev leader at Mixed Reality Division at Microsoft. Noel, Nikunj, very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Oliver. Pleasure. Um, I'm curious to find out whereabouts in the world you're tuning in from. Noel, you want to go first? Yeah, sure, I'll get started. Um, well, I'm in 
the Seattle area, um, which is not too far away from Redmond uh, campus. Um, and, you know, we haven't really been on campus a whole lot for the last couple of years, so I kind of miss it. But, um, but yeah, located in Seattle, mostly at home these days. Yeah, similar. I'm in Redmond, close to the Microsoft campus um, and stuck in my home office like <laughs> most of the world. So, Guys, can you please introduce yourself properly and give us a little bit of background as how you got into audio in general and how you got into the most recent roles and projects that you've been involved with with Microsoft specifically? I'll get started. Um, for me, I've been in and around audio since I started at Microsoft in the early 90s. Um, in fact, I, uh, in my teenage years, I was working on like Commodore Amiga computers and, and I talked to somebody at Microsoft and they were interested in starting a multimedia group. Um, multimedia seems like a term that's antiquated at this point, um, but it was quite uh, you know, forward looking at the time. And then, so I started working on sound cards and audio and drivers and all that stuff. And through the 90s, gaming became a lot more, uh, it started exploding on the PC and, and audio was a part of that. And so um, as graphics got more and more complicated and, and, uh, and really gaming became uh, super important on PCs, audio was one of those things that they wanted to augment as well. And that's where spatial audio started uh, showing up in the mid 90s. and. You know, frankly, I was not super impressed at the time. Um, it was it required you to be sitting in a very small sweet spot, and as soon as you got out of that sweet spot, the illusion was lost. And so, uh, fast forwarded to to 2014 when I joined the Hololens team, um, I was told, "Hey, we're going to work on spatial audio," and I was like, "Oh no, this isn't going to work very well." Um, and I was like pleasantly surprised. Uh, as soon as a highly accurate head tracker was introduced into the equation, everything became seamless and immersive. And ever since then, I was hooked and I just wanted to continue working on immersive audio experiences and uh, bring those tools to people to develop those experiences. So that's that's where I'm in now. So my, my story, if I go back, it's when I was young, I was playing around on what the the first 486s, 586s, and my first love was simulation. I basically was cooking up little three-body planetary simulations and doing some numerical algorithm saying, here's, here's a simple equation for gravity, let's see what happens. And that was my first introduction to, to the sort of thing I still do, which is numerical simulation. Yeah, I spent a lot of time doing that and playing a lot of games, of course. Uh, like Doom and all those games. Uh, I spent a lot of time on them in, them in college as well and in grad school. So I've <laughs> been playing games all along and getting some work done on the side, I guess, on the way. And yeah, and then uh, when I got into grad school, I was in in the graphics program at UNC Chapel Hill. And again, I, I got into simulation uh, working with my advisor, Minglin. And the original plan was more on the computer graphics side. But I, at that time, I did a course on uh, physics simulation. Because in computer graphics, people do all kinds of simulations like fluid simulation, cloth simulation. And I got interested in sound. I was like, this is a completely different modality. It just seemed very different and interesting to try to mod model a whole different sense. 
And so that's how I got into audio through the route of physics simulation. So I did some initial sound synthesis research at UNC Chapel Hill. I initiated this direction there of, you know, how do you simulate sound? And then I got into acoustics from there. Uh, I was using this modal analysis technique for synthesis and I thought, hey, let's apply it to acoustics. Let's see what happens. And I kind of learned acoustics on the job. You know, I thought that's going to be a simple affair, not realizing it's an entire field. And then I was like, okay, this, this is difficult. I did manage to invent some stuff. And in the process of publishing, I learned on the job what difficulties of the field are and what the field is. Then I landed in Microsoft in 2010. And we did, uh, we did a paper with my colleague, John Snyder. He's been my longtime colleague on the research side and mentor as well. So we did a paper on... Uh, sound propagation for games. And this was one of the first systems that showed that, hey, you could do wave-based simulation for interactive sound propagation. And we used the iconic train station scene from Half-Life 2. And, and that's, that's, that was the first demo. Then from there, uh, my research work grew out on Triton, like we got Game Studios interest. And we can get into those details later on, I guess. But... Um, yeah, and I've been basically at this problem ever since. How do you do efficient uh, sound propagation for interactive media, broadly games and VR, mixed reality? And around 2014, I think, 2014 or 15, my paths crossed with, with Noel and his team working on the HoloLens, and we got to talking. And that led to, towards the more recent developments. And now we're sort of a V team. We always work together, and we all always have a lot of fun inventing stuff in this in this space. My team works um, on the next generation mixed reality products, devices, um, working on the audio plumbing to make sure that applications can access all the capabilities um, of the device. And in addition, this V team that Nikunj alluded to um, is really our kind of our passion project. It's called Project Acoustics. Um, it is something that, um, you know, if we could work on it without getting paid, we probably would. Um, but it, it is, uh, it, it's such a awesome learning experience uh, working with Nikunj and learning what he's done up to this point with Triton. And then really trying to uh, connect with the industry to see how these tools can help improve their experiences, the, the titles that they develop, or even um, you know, say with like architectural acoustics, trying to use these tools to uh, help in the, that domain as well. So it's, it's kind of a duality. Um, these tools are, are helpful for these experiences, but also um, I work on mostly like operating system, audio APIs and drivers and, and uh, policies and stuff like that. My current role, I'm, I'm in the research for industry team within Microsoft Research. And our charter is essentially spans basic research up to application in various industries. So, and I'm within, within RFI, within research for industry, I'm the gaming research lead. And one of the uh, main projects I'm looking at is Project Acoustics and thinking about its applications to gaming and also other industries as well. And I also have other projects I'm looking at somewhat. But my core research focus is project acoustics. I wonder, uh, probably a lot of people would love to know 
what it's like to work for Microsoft, which is such a huge company, such a global company that's doing so many different uh, exciting things for the future, developing technology for the future. Um, what is the culture when it comes to research and development and how much effort is being placed on onto innovation of new technologies and particularly in spatial audio? I'll let Nikunj take that one. Um, I, I went first the previous times. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like research, I'd say in, in it's like you said, it's it's a big company. And if if you try to look at R and D throughout Microsoft, you you'll find it. Uh, there's lots of applied research uh, outfits within various product teams as well. Like Noel's team also does quite a bit of uh, audio R&D up on the applied side. But we have a whole division committed to research, which is MSR. And MSR's charter is, is like I said earlier, it's, it's very broad. It's like basic, it spans basic research in computer science, you know, with broad societal value. And it goes all the way to applied research, industry-focused research. And you asked about spatial audio. I mean, we have, in, in MSR, I can comment on, like we have many different angles at which we approach this problem. Um, there's a lot of research, like I'll say three broad categories within MSR right now on spatial audio. One is in human-computer interaction there's lots of researchers working uh, from the side of accessibility for people who are blind, so making audio interfaces essentially. So there's there was a recent research project called the CaneTroller, which is basically haptic, haptic feedback and auditory feedback in complex scenes. There's Soundscape, which is an app we ship straight from MSR, uh, which is for um, providing map-based audio cues to navigate cities and such for people who are blind. So there's the accessibility side of spatial audio research. Then we have the audio and acoustics research team in MSR led by Ivan Tashev. And they do, do a lot of work on the capture and reproduction side of things. So Noel mentioned earlier the, the HRTF uh, capture stuff. So they have a, a lot of work there. They also do work on microphone arrays, you know, speed signal enhancement and things like that, like core audio, many core audio topics with a lot of intersection with spatial audio. And finally, there's, uh, there's uh, me and John Snyder, we're, we're in RFI. Our focus is more on the gaming and interactive media side of the world and acoustical modeling in particular. So we have many different initiatives going on and this is just within Microsoft Research. Uh, there's other broad things happening in the company, I'm sure, some of which Noel knows about too. Yeah, so um, to build upon that, like my my team on the uh, product engineering side of things is, you know, we can't invent everything ourselves, and we uh, heavily rely upon um, Yvonne's team and Nikunja's team to help us um, essentially create the uh, the next level of tools to be able to ship. Um, while uh, MSR might not have like ship ready code quite there, they they may be focusing more on the algorithmic design, uh, my team will, uh, you know, kind of sift through the stuff that they've uh, invented, the papers that they've written, and figure out what is applicable in the product space that we're working in. And so there are incentives for MSR to steer their um, research towards more product-focused things. Um, but I think it's very collaborative. 
Um, you know, MSR will show us stuff that they're working on. They uh, bring in out, outside researchers all the time that uh, we can go to uh, guest lectures for. And uh, again, we, we kind of do this sifting process where we're trying to find the best ideas that we can productize and then put it into practice. Um, so there, it, there's very little um, like separation or walls in between the divisions. It's very fluid. And, and especially with working with Nikunj, I, I, I feel like we have essentially created a, you know, a V team, as he had mentioned, where there's, there's no boundaries at all. We're, we're all on the same page, working towards the same uh, goals in mind. And that's, that's really empowering. It's, it's, it's amazing to, to work with uh, such luminaries in the industry and, and uh, kind of bring that stuff to, uh, to people who want to use it. Um, so that's, that's, there's really no boundaries um, when it comes to working across teams, and and uh, I think the culture is really in, uh, encourages that that cross group collaboration. Yeah, I'll add to that, like having this porous boundary, and I know of other collaborations of a similar nature between MSR and outside teams as well. It's like it's extremely rewarding because you get a lot to learn from each other, right? Uh, Coming from the research side, we're more steeped a bit in academia and research. Like knowing how real software is built and shipped has been a great learning experience for me. Both working with Noel on a V team and before that I was on a V team with the coalition team when we shipped this in Gears of War, which was the first game to use this tech. It was a similar rewarding experience. Like I learned so much about game development from that. And I learned so much about mixed reality and the HoloLens working with with Noel. So it's it's wonderful when you can set up collaborations like V-Team collaborations like this. Our hot topic today is physics-based acoustics. Guys, can you tell us more about this topic? And let's talk specifically about project acoustics and Project Triton that you've been working on. Firstly, also, um, what these initiatives were set to achieve to begin with? Yeah, so uh, the roots the roots of Project Acoustics go back to around 2010 when, uh, when we published this paper uh, showing that you can use wave-based pre-computation. So that's where the genesis of acoustic wave-based acoustic baking was. That's the paper we introduced it in and published in SIGGRAPH in 2010. Um, and then, then we showed that demo around internally to various teams. And around 2012, we showed this to, at this internal audio summit where all the audio directors are present. And it caught the eye of, of John Morgan um, and Kate Rayner from the coalition. And John Morgan is the audio director there. And then we got we got to talking, and John was like, "Okay, let's let's just uh, let's try this out." And we immediately realized like this this classic gap between paper and practice, <laughs> and and it was the memory usage was too intense really to ship this in games. So so we got working. We basically did a lot of R and D on the fly, based on their requirements to come up with this new parametric design that's in the that's been the dna of of what triton is so at that moment i think triton was invented is realizing that to hit the memory footprints of gaming uh, like the tight cpu requirements 
and to make it designable, to, to put it in a form where an audio designer could, could really work with it. The, with those two things in mind, how do you design a system? That's the genesis of, of this technology of Triton. And then we worked with them quite intensely over two years uh, within a V team from 2014 to 2016. And 2016 was the shipping for Gears of War 4. And we did successfully. We had some close calls, but we managed to ship it successfully in, in, that, in that game. Which, so which was the proof of, proof of concept that, uh, you know, you can, I guess, beyond proof of concept and actual validation in the industry that such technology has become viable. And before that moment, I think around 2014, 2015, Noel uh, and us in MSR and Noel's team had started talking. And we shipped this technology in, um, in the Windows Mixed Reality portal, which I guess Noel can talk more to, but we shipped, the, shipped this Cliff House experience, which sort of, it's a 3D metaphor for the the desktop is a 2D metaphor, it's a 3D metaphor. So you have this virtual reality beach house and you can put apps on the walls. And one of the issues was sounds would just leak straight through walls and it just didn't create the right immersion. And Noel's team picked it up, uh, put it in there. And that's how we worked, started working closely together. It, it landed in, in a release of Windows that way. In HoloLens 1, um we started playing around with, you know, how would virtual sounds like we had spatial audio in HoloLens one and we were, you know, if you look at visually, if you put an app on the wall and you walk around the other side of that wall, visually that app would get occluded. And unfortunately audio would not. And so we were trying to find ways, figure out ways in a real time manner to, you know, mimic vision as well, uh, mimic what you're seeing. And so we started playing around with some real-time algorithms and nothing really worked all that well. Um, and so we were, you know, continuing to pursue this problem. And that's when we uh, started work, uh, working with Nikunj, realizing that he had solved all these problems of diffraction and inclusion, all this stuff with, with Triton. And so like, like Nikunj mentions, we incorporated that into the, the shell or the home experience because this was a very geometrically complex uh, space. It had uh, portals all over the place and you wanted to make sure that you would hear sound propagate through those portals. And once we get put Triton into the experience, it worked brilliantly. Everything just kind of worked. Everybody was like, oh my God, this sounds amazing. And uh, they, don't, they weren't sure why it sounded amazing, but it just did. Um, and so... The epiphany was like, how do we take this Triton technology and instead of just locking it up for Microsoft people to use on on you know titles like Gears of War or the mixed reality um, home experience, we wanted to give it to third party developers as well. Um, and, and as soon as we started doing that, we realized in the mixed reality space, there mostly people were using uh, game engines like Unity 3D or Unreal Engine. And so taking Triton and then providing it for uh, people who are creating these mixed reality experiences, we needed to, to bridge the gap between what Triton was and what Project Acoustic eventually became, which is a set of plugins that interfaced with these 3D game engines 
the tooling would be cross-platform so that if you did want to use the uh, technology on, say, a PlayStation or an Xbox or Android, you'd be able to do so. Because we, we noticed early on that as mixed reality was starting to uh, come of age, most uh, t- title developers would not accept a, a plugin that was not cross-platform because there just weren't enough sockets. So we we went out and we we started rebuilding Triton and its runtime and its and plugins for these game engines in a cross-platform way, so we could get the most amount of adoption possible. And so we're still on that journey, providing plugins and uh, optimizing and making the footprint smaller, making the ability to target larger scenes uh, e- more easily, adding more design controls, et cetera. And that's that's kind of where uh, we are today and, and where we're going to be um, continuing to enhance in the future. So I know when I uh, came to AESAVAR a few years ago and uh, Project Acoustics was being announced, um, a lot of the rendering, um, so it was kind of like, using ray tracing to or like kind of that same similar uh concept of ray tracing to create this like 3d model of the sound in your room which was super impressive in the sense of just uh um again when we're trying to recreate how sound is in a space and i've done a little stuff just in you know basic acoustics um and it's really complicated sound doesn't interact with the space uh like even even acousticians who are trying to model how the acoustics of a space is going to work when they're building a physical space have a hard time being able to really model that. Can you talk a little bit about kind of that modeling of that the spaces and how that works currently? This characterization via ray tracing, that's, the, that's interesting because it's similar to ray tracing in the sense of it's a physically based model for the acoustics, right? And geometric acoustics has been used to great effect for a long time in room acoustics literature. But if you look at it in detail, um, ray, the concept of a ray breaks down for audio. And the reason that happens is, let's start with graphics where ray tracing works actually brilliantly. And the key reason for that is visible light wavelengths are in the range of hundreds of nanometers. They are very, very small compared to the typical objects around us, which are centimeters to meters. So what that lets you do is to say, okay, the wavelength is so small, I can basically drive it down to zero. And that's what a ray is. A ray is in, it has no cross section, right? It has no width to it. And that's the zero wavelength approximation at work. So rays work really well as an approximation for graphics, even though you hit some corner cases. But for audio, you suddenly run into a big problem. The wavelengths you hear for audio are exactly in the centimeter to meter range. And that's not coincidence either because our brains are clever. They look for information everywhere they can get. Like light already gives you line of sight information. Because sound wavelengths are so big, they bend around objects, which is called diffraction. And it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And our brains use that information. We use light to understand what's in line of sight and field of view. And we use audio to understand what's outside line of sight or behind us because of diffraction. So it's no coincidence, but what it means is that when you're designing a system to model these things, the mathematical abstractions you start with for acoustics are more complex. You have to start with the wave, with the wave, the true wave nature of 
audio. You don't need to start for computer graphics to start with the wave nature of light, but you have to start there for audio. Because if you don't, if you say, fine, yes, audio has diffraction, but let's neglect it. You know, let's see how far we can get with rays. You, have, you start hitting these bugs, which have been called various names. Like one of them is the lamppost bug, which is if a grenade goes off and there's a lamppost in your line of sight with the grenade, you won't hear it if you occlude that, which is obviously wrong. So you get obviously wrong things when you ignore diffraction because in reality, wavelengths are so big, they would just wrap around the lamppost, they would diffract around it and you would just hear it with full clarity. Right, So you, you start and you, you can have a whole range of bugs which are all arising because of this missing fundamental thing that you're not modeling diffraction. So our original thought way back in 2010 was the same thing. Let's go back, let's do the physics. And since it's so heavyweight, like doing the wave simulation amounts to solving the, the underlying partial differential equation. So you have to discretize space into these sub-wavelength cells and you have, you're doing this fluid simulation essentially in three dimensions and over time. And that gets really expensive. So the upside is that you capture what audio does and you don't have all these corner cases. But the downside is this is just tremendously high compute. Like ray tracing is already famously compute intensive. This is more compute than that, right? This is much more compute than that. So... So our idea in the core idea, if there's one takeaway from Triton and Project Acoustics is pre-compute that. Like it has a long tradition in computer graphics for other techniques as well. When, when there is such a stage, you try to pre-compute it and then you say, okay, now I already know the answer. But again, the limitation is static scenes. But a good portion of scenes can be static in, in real useful cases. So it introduces that limitation of static scenes, but takes away all the corner cases and all these things you'd have to deal with as a sound designer. Like you don't need to have detailed knowledge of how it's doing it, right? You can trust its outputs. That's really the key advantage. And then you, you bake. And the key technical ideas in our system is how to compress that. Because as soon as you bake, you've replaced lots of CPU usage at runtime. You've traded it for RAM, you've dated it for memory and disk, right? So that's the trade-off that you introduce. And so our research has been focused on that compression and how to take this massive data set generated from wave simulation and how to compress it down. And for that, we use perception. And we say, okay, you computed this detailed wave simulation. It has like, um, I think, billions of impulse responses within it. And how do you compress it down? Well, the answer is you figure out what people hear out of those impulse responses. You try to take peel off one by one what the most important um, parameters are from these impulse responses. For example, loudness. If you just take the loudness of all these impulse responses, you can make this heat map of how the loudness varies throughout a 3D scene if I place the source here, say, at some location. And that already gives you this nice occlusion effect around geometry, where it varies smoothly instead of clipping off at edges and silhouettes. So that's, that's the basic concept is you 
do a pre-computed wave simulation, which is a lots, lots of heavy compute. It can be parallelized on the cloud or your own cluster. And then you compress it out and you get this very compressed asset like 100 megabytes that can be loaded into your game or interactive experience. And it contains perceptual things. It contains things like loudness and decay times, which makes sense to an application or a sound designer. That's, that's the short summary of the whole thing. That's super cool. And I think, uh, um, I know, again, I was very fascinated um, when I initially heard about the project and excited to get to talk with you all now and see kind of how it's evolved. Um, yeah, I know initially you were, you, you, um, well, you would, people, and I'm, I'm sure maybe today can still use Azure servers to kind of do that rendering of that initial, that initial file. Can you maybe explain a little bit more the workflow of working with Project Acoustic? Yeah, I think, Noel, would you want to catch that? Sure, yeah. Um, so I think one of the main pieces of the system that allows for parallelization is this idea of a probe point. Um, and so when a scene is being analyzed, the geometry is being analyzed, um, there's an algorithm that figures out where all the relevant listener positions are. And, and so oftentimes that is uh, equated to um, a navigation mesh, meaning if you can walk it, then you, your ears are going to be in that space. And so every place where somebody can walk or uh, navigate is a place where we want to do a simulation. And so we, we uh, space out all of these probe points. And then the, the beauty is that each one of these probe points is effectively independent from each other when it comes to a simulation. And so every single one of these probe points is then a mini simulation that's sent to a specific machine. Um, oftentimes it's in the cloud um, because it's you can spin up machines in the cloud and, and spin them down really uh, quite naturally. And so once all these simulations are running in parallel on a bunch of different machines, all the results are then, uh, once, once those simulations are done, usually it's gonna take roughly around five to 10 minutes, uh, depending on the size of the scene. But once the five to 10 minutes of simulation is, is completed on each of those machines, then we collate the results together and produce this asset file that gets included in your game. That's that's the 100 megabyte file that, that Nikunj was alluding to. So it's a very nice piecemeal algorithm. And then at runtime, uh, you know, obviously the listener is gonna be in between all these probe points. And so we interpolate um, the values that we get for these acoustic parameters between these probe points so that we can uh, have a really nice smooth experience um, in that space when it comes to acoustics. At the high level, the workflow is you describe to us what geometry, uh, the geometrical input to the system. So in Unity or Unreal, it's pretty uniform. You'd essentially tag various objects in, in the world saying, okay, this should participate in acoustics. And typically we say tag everything and untag things that are not real geometry, like fog volumes and stuff, which are for virtual VFX and stuff. So yeah, you just tell us which geometry should, should waves bounce from. And then you tell us what materials to use for, for the geometry. So every triangle to our system can have a distinct acoustic material. So you basically tell us the geometry and materials. And we, you know, 
ship with some standard acoustic materials you can assign. We try to guess them from the material names. and that's. Um, but once you have those associations, then basically all that data is ready. So that's one piece, just what the waves bounce from. The second piece is, like Noel alluded to earlier, is to know where the player can go. And it's just mainly a way to economize the, the number of simulations we need to do. So if, say, you give us a nav mesh or tell us essentially where the ground is, then we can figure out, okay, these are the listener locations we need to sample. But the source locations we always assume are free. Like that's typical in, in games is the source can really fly around anywhere. So the source is in 3D, but the listener is kind of multiple floors of a building or the ground outside, you know. So these are the two, two pieces we need from the user. The geometry of the scene and where the player can go. With those inputs, we run what we call the pre-bake, which is just some geometry analysis we do on the scene. And that's just that's mainly a button click with some configuration parameters. And what we do is voxelize the scene for our simulator. So we chunk up the scene into these little 3D cells. Each cell is either air or it is some acoustic material. So that per triangle information goes into these cells. Each cell is telling us, I bounce waves in this way, right? And once we build that information and we build out where the listener can be with these probe locations, that's when we're ready to deploy it to the cloud or a cluster. And then you can basically, then, then each one chunks out information, each probe chunks out information from this, this voxel data as it needs and goes and does a simulation in, in a massively parallel way. And so then each probe sends us back, okay, according to me, if the listener was here, this is what the 3D acoustics would be like for many, many source locations. So we take all that data and basically just uh, concatenate it essentially and produce an ACE file, which is our asset. So it's like um, light maps for graphics. It's roughly similar. It's you did some pre-analysis with a lot of compute and you built out this data of how the how waves bounce around in the scene, right? That's what's in this in this data set. And the runtime, it just loads this file. You give us two locations, where the listener is and where the source is. And we output, we just look up into this data set and output to you. This was what the loudness was like. This is what the T60 was like and many other per perceptual parameters. And that, that those numbers can then feed into the actual audio engine. Right, so now that's probably the more interesting part is how you use these parameters to drive audio. And our core philosophy is in our plugins, we provide standard ways to do these. Like we ship signal processing plugins that will do this reverb, that will do all these things. But we also aim for flexibility for you as a sound designer to be able to say, I want to interpret this loudness you output into this game sync that I will render in such and such way to the audio, right? There's pretty much infinite room for um, adapting how what these numbers mean for you, right? We provide just a baseline, essentially. And that, that's where we think one of the unique aspects of the system is that it does not say that since I'm physics-based, you have to do physics. That's really not the philosophy here. The physics is mostly to give you a good answer, good, good starting point, but then you can design these parameters. So essentially, 
the workflow on the on the audio side, say inside Vice, for example, or even UE5's native audio would be you'd use their language, the language of Vice or the language of UE5's MetaSounds to kind of translate these for yourself. And we basically provide an initial way to do these things, if that makes sense. Is it, is it like completely like cross-compatible when it comes to different game engines, middleware, gaming console? For instance, is it just for 2D games or we can take it all into VR and have Sigstoff acoustics? Um, can, can you talk about it from that angle as well? The system is completely Sigstoff. From day one, you can have a 3D scene uh, and a dynamic source within Currently, we have point sources. We're working towards more interesting source types. But you, have a, you, have a, you can have a dynamic point source in the scene and a dynamic listener in the scene. Like I said, the initial application was Gears of War 4. So whatever is required for that scenario, at least definitely for 3D first-person games or even third-person games, it, it supports all that. So really, it, it's directly applicable within virtual reality and mixed reality. Like we talked about in the Windows Mixed Reality context. That's a VR application of this uh, technology. So, yeah, it, it definitely handles those scenarios. And in terms of platform dependencies, the core technology has none, right? It's, it's just a system for analyzing geometry. You can, we have a Unity and Unreal integration, but there's also, you, you can invoke our tools directly then we can take a geometry input from an FBX file, for example. So on the input side, the tools are quite general. And on the output side as well, um, you can use the Project Acoustics plugins, but then you can also use the core li acoustics library inside that opens up this asset, right? You can just go down to, dig down to that level, just build it into whatever game engine you have, load that asset file, and do what you want with the output parameters and hook them up to your audio engine or hook it up to Wise or whatever, right? So it's highly flexible in terms of hardware, in terms of software platforms. And our philosophy is keep that flexibility, but also give some standardized end-to-end -end routes for people to easily consume it. For certain cases we know are pretty common. For example, Unreal Engine or Unity like Unity plus native audio or Unreal plus Wise. So we're just identifying some common patterns of usage and saying that should be trivial. But then there's very this very flexible system inside that you can definitely dig down to and use for whatever purpose. About half of the customers that we engage with are using Unreal Engine or Unity 3D as a kind of standard middleware. But uh, a lot of AAA studios will create their own engines. And even though we... Uh, tend to develop using like Unreal Engine or Unity 3D because it's just much faster and more efficient to import geometry. Um, we, we have worked with several studios who have their own bespoke engines and the system works really well with that as well. Um, so yeah, we, we, we work with both, both style of customers and uh, we do source code licensing to allow for those customers to build the project for the target platform. So if there's a platform that we've never seen before, all the code is written in a cross-platform way. And so the tools that you use to build for that particular platform is something that uh, the developer who licenses the code should be able to, with very, very small amount of modifications, be able to get it running on their platform as well. 
Yeah, I guess I was going to ask, um, we're, we're talking a lot about game development and how this can be applied with in that space, but I was wondering if there are other applications that you see for this as well outside of game development. Yeah, we're uh, currently collaborating with, I think, two teams, uh, one inside Microsoft, one outside on the architectural acoustic side of things. Um, and there's, I think there's, that's a very interesting potential application of this technology in the construction industry. I know there are other companies as well, like um, like Treble, who are also looking at wave-based acoustics for construction. But that's that's a very interesting uh, area for the future of these technologies because construction is undergoing a digital transformation right now. Like people are using. Uh, 3D models of the environments more and more in the planning and construction stage. So there's a big opportunity to say, okay, you already have the 3D plans. This is what, is, what it's going to sound like. And we've actually had a, uh, a partner who sort of modified their plans based on that, like with privacy partitions and how much they occlude to give um, various people in a common space privacy from speech so they don't hear each other. Um, so there's lots of interesting application in sort of engineering acoustics, architectural acoustics with such technologies. The beauty of the tools that Nikunj has developed is that we have targeted video games up to this point, And for video games, they can tolerate a certain amount of uh, lack of accuracy just because you're you know, charging through a scene really quickly and you might not hear some nuanced uh, part of that scene. Whereas the tools will allow you to increase the frequency in which the simulation runs. And so when we're working with these architectural acoustics companies, they are giving us feedback on things we can improve. Like, like Nikunj mentioned, there's perceptual uh, compression that's going on. And so they'll give us feedback that, hey, uh, when we hear, uh, when we measure a room versus uh, doing the room uh recreation in, in a simulation, they'll, they'll highlight some of the differences that they hear in our system. And so we can tweak those uh, parameters. We can tweak how we do the compression. We can run simulations at higher frequencies to get more accuracy. So that tool chain really allows you to go from these video game kind of entertainment-based uh, applications all the way up to very practical. And you, you might be making million-dollar decisions based off of you know, where to put a, an acoustic treatment on a wall. You can choose this material and the absorption properties of those materials will affect how that building um, is built and how people interact in that building. It's like uh, currently, I'd say our goal is sort of a preview prediction. Like you wouldn't hinge your decisions directly on it, but it's sort of the first step in a process for decision-making in, in the built environment. And... This is actually active research for us right now. So I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, apart from you know, ramping up the existing parameters, we're also actively looking at what more should we encode? What more information do we need to extract from these baseline wave simulations we do that would capture uh, the perceptual aspects for more, towards more fidelity? Right, that you the holy grail, of course, is that we render through our system, we have a measured spatial impulse response, we convolve that, and you can't tell the difference, right? That's that is the holy grail. 
but we're on this sort of having these industry partners, the usefulness lies in, they can tell us which is the next most important bit for them, right? So the next most important bit for us right now is to encode um, salient reflections and defining a salient echo, that's that's the hard part. Like what, what captures salience perceptually is difficult, but we're focused on that problem right now to get us more towards a much more um, accurate rendition of these individual reflections within the space, which by the way, feeds back into gaming and mixed reality and virtual reality as well, because those, for those experiences, the immersion improves. So we're, we're on this very nice sort of feedback loop where we help one industry, it puts us on the course for another, and we keep ping-ponging, you know, to, to improve the experience for everyone. Well, and I find, you know, what you were saying about this relationship between working within the virtual space and building these virtual models, but then actually testing them out in real life, um, you know, through working with these partners in, that are actually developing these acoustic spaces, um, yeah, again, how that that really is, you know, giving you that opportunity to see how well your models are actually translating to the real world and how that then and that feedback, I think, is really, um, really great. Yes, yes, absolutely. There's a big difference between a sound designer telling you that sounds good and then somebody who works in architectural acoustics telling you it sounds accurate, right? Yeah. And so uh, we, we need to go on both ends of the scale and make sure we satisfy all those customers. But it's sort of a circle rather than a scale because sound designers can be like gaming also. I've, they, they have trained ears, right? And it's, at the end of the day, I suspect it amounts to the same thing. Time will tell. But I think once we make the uh, you know, architectural acoustics folks happy, audio designers will also say, hey, you used to have these weird uncanny valley things and they're gone now. <laughs> Like, I have a specific example in mind, actually. When in, in Gears of War early on, we had this uh, case where there was a probe, there was a location inside an elevator shaft, right? And we do certain approximations in, in the system so that we, um, we simulate bass boost. Like, you have a small enclosure, the bass is going to just boom, right? Your speech will get boomy. And the way we approximate things, we just bring the whole level up for the whole audio, not just the low frequencies. So he walked into the sh elevator shaft to listen to it. This was John Tennant. He, he was the sound designer in Gears of War 4. I worked with a lot. And he was like, you know, it's like reality. I buy it, but it's, it's sort of in the uncanny valley. It's like, I don't want this. I don't want this volume boost inside this elevator shaft. And it took me a while to realize that really the issue was that we were not rendering base boost as base boost. We were rendering it as level boost. And this is an example of sort of the uncanny valley you can land in when you're approximating things. And really my hypothesis still is once we model that properly, then we can actually deliver that accurate result without falling into the uncanny valley. And then sound designers will also like it. And architectural acoustics folks will say, okay, good, you're modeling the modes of the space. That's good for us, right? So there's these two lenses on it, uh, one from just the convincing your ears side and one from the quantitative side that we can make predictions. But I'm guessing they converge at some point. That's just my gut feeling. Yeah, I know. Uh, my, my, my partner is a data scientist 
and he, but he works in insurance and talks all the time and he builds models is what he does, um, for, you know, modeling, uh, like pricing and, you know, and having that relationship between, because with models, you're just very focused on, you make a lot of assumptions. Um, you make a lot of, uh, you know, you're trying to recreate reality as closely as you can, but you still, like, you're making certain assumptions based on your own biases that you're putting into those models. And so then when you put it into reality, you suddenly see, oh, this is actually <laughs> not working the way I thought it would, you know, having that feedback. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. I, I think, yeah, one of the lessons I've learned working with so many uh, partners in the industry is you don't know what the research problem is until you try to apply things. You know, you, so it's, it's a difficult problem from a researcher's point of view is if you say I'm only going to get started once I have some industry contacts or some product group contacts, that also doesn't work. So there is definitely conviction involved that you, you know, you're sitting in your office and you think, no, this is going to be useful, right? I believe it's going to be useful. But at some point you have to find a way to contact actual practitioners, get them interested enough. And then you have to be flexible enough to hear when they tell you this is not exactly what you should have solved. And that's okay, right? So you have to sort of pivot based on what people tell you the real problem is for them at that point and sort of then chase that. But it's beautiful once you can find partners who are giving you solid goals, right? Because then you absolutely know you're solving the right things. Well, I'm interested how, how we can all think of applying this even further to the work we're all doing. Well, that's a perfect segue to my next question or set of questions. Lately, we've been all talking about metaverse and there's been so much noise and, and we did touch about, you know, what spatial audio means in that context. And to me personally, kind of talking about metaverse fails in comparison to what you guys do because you are solving very complex, very important problems right now. But, you know, I can't help but to kind of go there for a little bit and potentially ask your opinion, your view on the whole thing, because surely what you're doing is the, you know, the fundamentals of what audio should be in the metaverse. Yeah, so being in the mixed reality team, this uh, topic of metaverse is, you know, top of mind for us uh, on a daily basis. Um, I personally don't um, like interact um, with kind of the metaverse stuff too much myself because I'm kind of more on the technology side. But what I'll say is um, I've had some pretty compelling experiences over the last couple of years kind of getting immersed into uh, virtual spaces. Um, like I've done conferences over Zoom or Microsoft Teams where everybody's in you know, a grid-like pattern and that works, but um, I, I must say that we've, I've done a couple of conferences. We talked about AES AVAR. AES AVAR was done in Altspace, um, which is a um, it's a VR environment that allows people to gather together um, with their avatars and, and speak to each other. And to me, that's you know the closest uh, manifestation of the metaverse that I've seen so far. And uh, I, I really enjoyed, especially during the pandemic getting together with people virtually and having uh, this naturalness of, of, of experience. It's a lot of it is interaction through voice. And so, and 
you know, it's very natural for humans to congregate together, have discussions, and then break apart and go find another group to uh, interact with. And spatial audio is super important in in making sure that that experience is natural and seamless. Um, and then on top of that, the head tracking, uh, when you're in the actual VR experience, um, can just make everything just fall away as far as like you thinking that you're in a virtual space. So um, where the metaverse is going to go with, you know, NFTs and emotes and all these other things, I, I don't know. That, that's kind of not my area. But uh, I can say that, you know, having spatial audio applied in these places, um, it is it is super engaging. And, uh, you know, it's it's like Teams just or, or Zoom just doesn't recreate that. Um, that sense of, of togetherness, that sense of co-presence, which I think is super valuable, especially in this day and age where, you know, people are fairly isolated. So um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to people using spatial audio or immersive audio technology uh, to really break down those boundaries and, and make sure that people feel like they're part of a community. Yeah, it's... Uh... You know, it's from a user perspective, it's sort of an evolution from modeling a room to modeling an entire scene or a space, right? For instance, there's speech privacy. Like when you model, say, a conference in a in, in a 3D space, uh, people naturally understand that, hey, if you go into a corner and talk uh, in private, it offers some degree of privacy. Or if we... If you're behind a wall, you know, in a different room, uh, in a little focus room, we're talking, the room will isolate our sounds. And if you don't model the environment, you don't, you are basically violating a contract you get in real life. Does that make sense? So in in real life, it's like, yeah, if I speak softly over here, people won't hear it over there because we're trained in the real world with real acoustics. We understand how it behaves intuitively, even though if we don't know the physics of it, we understand how things behave. And whenever virtual worlds violate the basic contracts of real world physics, what happens is people will get confused. People will be like, why is it doing this? That somebody right behind this wall is hearing me at full volume. That's just one. Occlusion is an easy one. So I keep taking it as an example. There's so many others, right? That that's fundamentally why you want to do model physics as a safe bet, because people are trained on it and our brains are really, really, really adept at anticipating what outcomes are yeah, in the real world. So I think that's the core argument why, in my mind, why modeling good uh, sound propagation and good even light propagation in virtual environments or for the metaverse is essential. Like it's much, it goes much beyond, hey, it's snazzy pixels, right? Or cool audio effects. It it goes down to the core of increasing user comfort and making feel com- people minimize fatigue in there, which is, by the way, one of the big uh, discussion topics when it comes to the metaverse is how do you reduce fatigue for people? How do you make them feel much more comfortable putting on these VR headsets or goggles or whatever have you? Like the, the key hurdle is just the fatigue that some people get or even some nausea and all that. But I think this is definitely part of the story is how, to do, how do you do realistic rendering that matches people's expectations? So yeah, acoustic propagation is certainly an important part of that. Like if you remove that, then you'll have unrealistic rendering. 
and it's not just physical fatigue it's it's cognitive fatigue as well right oh that's what i'm yeah that's what i meant cognitive fatigue it's like this is and you know people will not not be able to articulate many times right like it's all subconscious our our sensory expectations are all subconscious so people will be like this is just uncomfortable i can't tell you why but it's uncomfortable right so it's up to uh, people like us to make sure at least on the audio side to understand why it's happening and fix those things yeah they, these users might not have the the language um or the background in audio to really describe what they're feeling in 2020 i was supposed to speak on a panel at south by southwest called headsets make us throw up um, <laughs> about that, you know, exact kind of, again, I work in gym, yeah. so I'm biased. <laughs> but although, you know, there was a period of time where gems made people throw up too, and I've seen some pretty awful gem shows that make you feel pretty uncomfortable as well. So I think that there's a lot to be said about how these technologies, are they benefiting or actually making us uh, cognitively fatigued or actually physically sick. <laughs> um, and and we're certainly solving, like there's many different trade-offs and this discussion exists within a much larger space, of course. But whenever the, you know, maybe the time is now, maybe it's in a in a year, few years. But yeah, sooner or later, I think we will have to model these sound propagation cues one way or another in these spaces. So people don't get cognitively fatigued or, you know, badly surprised by these spaces. Bjorn, um, like when it comes to AAA game uh, work, have you come across any of these tools? What kind of opinions people have in terms of like sound designers and technical sound designers? What's the view on the whole thing? Um, in most of the studios that I've worked in, everybody was building their own tool, so to speak. Um, like like easy, easy going approaches to occlusion, easy solutions for this and that. Um, but we were always in awe watching or reading articles about new Microsoft products like to some extent, I think in the beginning, only available on Xbox, where there was this new game um, where where it was available there. They had this new reverberation system. They had these new occlusion systems and calculations and so on. But I've never worked anywhere where we actually had access to that kind of tool. That being said, I have not researched it myself either um, and been in a situation where I would be able to call that kind of shot. But... I know a lot of people who uh, would benefit from a more standardized approach to these kinds of tools so that we don't have to invent the wheel every time we're trying to create a new project. Um, also, given the fact that, that these um, the Microsoft products will most likely be a much better tool and much more professionally coded, uh, much more serious than any audio programmer internally in the studio can probably do, no offense to these audio programmers, but I've met a lot of people who do audio code at video game studios who are not trained in any form of, of let's say, DSP coding or anything like that. They're just generalist programmers who are then put to do the audio code, which is basically just triggering stuff here and there. Um, but I would very much like to see it grow and uh, evolve and become much more freely available, um, not for free, of course, but but easier. I think it's I think it's a marketing thing, actually. 
to make people know that it's available. Would you say this is for big projects where you have a proper resources, proper technical team, or is it, or anyone can download stuff from your website and plug it in and with, with some adaptions off you go. Any size of the project can benefit from this. Yeah, I think it's, I, I'll go in short and then Noel can probably add detail, but really we want to cover the whole range. And that's why we have both this um, these plugins as well as a source licensing format for this thing. And big studios tend to go for the source licensing and smaller users who actually show up on our GitHub forums from uh, quite frequently, they're using the plugins, you know, say in Unity or in Unreal plus Wise. So it's, we ship it in both forms. But I, I think taking a step back, what Bjorn said, I wanted to respond that that lines up perfectly with what we observed in the industry and the reason for Project Acoustics' existence is that's our that's our vision. That's where we want to be, where it's something you just pick up and you don't have to solve acoustics again if you don't want to, right? And which is frequently the situation in game studios. And audio programmers are time constrained. They have so many other things to do. So we're really trying to build that general tool that can be dropped in across platforms and across project sizes. You know, big projects can use it as a power tool and small projects let, you know, you're able to, punch above your weight, so to say. That's what we want to do. Yeah, right. So like our original kind of mantra for Project Acoustics was we wanted to develop a no-code based system for sound designers. That was really our target audience. We uh, initially worked with the sound designer for Altspace to try to incorporate Project Acoustics into Altspace, and we were successful doing that. Um, and essentially all they needed to do was drop the plugin in, bake the space, and then tweak the design controls according to what their uh, you know design preferences were. Um, so that worked really well, and I think it continues to work well. Like our, our first set of customers were all uh, sound designers, and that really has been our focus from day one. Um, as you alluded to, um, oftentimes these game companies don't really have dedicated sound engineers. And that's kind of a space where uh, I would say, you know, we probably have some work to do in that area. But when you do have dedicated sound engineers, we have worked with companies with large AAA titles that um, they have dedicated sound engineers. They are, are audio programmers that will incorporate our tool chain in, and build it for the target platforms and, and get it integrated into their system. Um, and that works very well as well. Uh, but like our roots have been sound designers from day one. In fact, we went to uh, GameSoundCon to reveal, uh, you know, additional. I don't know if you've heard of GameSoundCon. It's a, it's a uh, sound designer uh, conference within uh, the U.S. and and that was another place where we try to get uh, attention for what we've been doing. So it's it we really are on this uh, continuum of sound designers on one end of the spectrum with pre. Uh, compiled binaries um, that you can just download from the web all the way up to if you need to cu customize, modify the code for your particular game, you can also do that. Um, all the things we've talked about so far that can apply uh, to mixed reality applications and uh, you know different set of hardware altogether, um, overlaying um, 
objects within kind of real space as opposed to um, being in the in the virtual space altogether. So it'd be interesting to unpack that and talk about some parallels and differences there. And the major difference for spatial audio between the first HoloLens and the second HoloLens, um, while the speakers got slightly better um, on that system, the major investment that we made was uh, realizing that spatial audio is 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 pretty expensive to render on a uh, a device that is you know somewhat underpowered. The, the first HoloLens was uh, roughly equivalent to like a mid-grade laptop um, as far as compute power, and so spatial audio rendering would would you know if if you're going to render up to like 10, 15 voices. Uh, simultaneously, it would it would consume a fair amount of the the core processor, and so for Hollands too, we spent a bunch of time working with yet another group, which is a hardware group, to design a custom chip for Hollands too to be able to offload um, that 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 uh, computation onto a specialized uh, coprocessor essentially, and so we could get up to I think it was like forty five voices is where we topped out at. Um, at no cost to the developer, and so we really thought that that was a way to uh, make the you know pay for play equation a lot different than it was on Hololens One, and and uh, you would be able to apply spatial audio a lot more liberally across your experiences without having to pay um, you know a major cost to render it because that was that was one of the key impediments was uh, you know there's a lot going on there's head tracking hand tracking. Um, there is, uh, you know, physics potentially going on. There's obviously a lot of graphics going on. There's a lot going on in a mixed reality experience, and all those workloads are all competing for that processor. And so um, we decided to make that investment in Hollands to to have a dedicated processor. And that dedicated processor is actually something that is continuing to live on and evolve and get better in the Xbox product line. And so they they really depended on the work that was being done. On Hololens 2, and now the latest generation Xbox consoles benefited from that initial work on that uh, hardware platform. Um, but other than that, that's kind of the main the main focus of Hololens 2 when it comes to spatial audio is really just trying to get more people to use it, do better documentation, uh, provide Unity plugins so that people can uh, easily integrate uh, spatial audio into their into their title, and essentially, it's no more than a slider uh, on, in Unity to to move something from a two D object to a three D object, and now you start um, utilizing the power of the hardware to do the spatial audio rendering. Um, but does it have the same feature where it's, it essentially scans the your local environment, analyzes the room, uh, and then allows you to? Utilize some additional features that, um, uh, in relation to virtual acoustics, where um, it knows where you are and you can help it by tweaking the parameters. And essentially, say if I have a um, a virtual puppy in mixed reality playing on my carpet, um, when the sound propagates, that excites the the room um, that I'm actually in, as opposed to just uh, firing the dry acid in in a vacuum, so to speak. Yeah, so that is um, a part of our technology, which was our first foray into um, acoustics based, on, you know, real-time acoustics based off the geometry. And so we have access to the triangle mesh, which represents the geometry. And then we do, um, you know, essentially we 
do some occlusion testing, hit testing with uh, ray casting in order to decide if something is, you know, on the other side of some geometry or not. And then we'll do some uh, some filtering in order to, to provide that effect. So it is, it is by far and away a much simpler, cheaper um, simulation than what we do in Project Acoustics. Um, and that's really our desires to kind of get both of these systems starting to work, you know, together, meaning uh, having Project Acoustics starting be being aware of more dynamic geometry changes in real time is something that we aspire to. That's kind of where we're trying to head. So the real-time acoustics that's in HoloLens 2 is kind of that first step in that journey. And then the pre-baked acoustics is kind of the top end holy grail experience. And we're trying to find a place in the middle where um, you can have dynamic real-time acoustics, but you can get the accuracy that you're looking for with respect to you know cues like diffraction and occlusion. This is highly parallel to, if you look at the evolution of computer graphics in games, it's completely parallel to that. Is like I think Quake was the first game that did pre maybe the first game, but one of the early ones to use pre-baked lighting. And then people have been moving that more and more towards how much of this can we get in real time. So Project Acoustics, as it existed, let's say in 2018, was completely pre-baked. And now we've been thinking hard about on two axes. One we already covered is the realism or the fidelity. The other one is dynamism. And we recently added some alpha support for doors, dynamic doors that can open and close. So we're seeing how far we can get, you know, with a baked baseline, with some dynamic elements like doors or dynamic obstructions thrown in on top of that, which is very close to what game engines do today. And then moving towards like fully dynamic in the future. Like UE5s, one of the big reveals for them was fully dynamic lighting, using a lot of GPU horsepower. Like how far can we get with acoustics with a fully dynamic scenario? Or will we have, you know, a big baseline plus dynamic elements as the future? That's that's to be seen. It's all the fun of research to see what we can fit in uh, CPU compute budgets. And also interestingly, how we could potentially influence how much budget is actually allocated to audio by showing the value that immersive acoustics can bring to various titles. The, the other thing that um, I didn't quite get the chance to interject in the right time um, that I don't think was really mentioned at all during the conversation is um, as AAA titles start expanding into very, very large spaces, like these spaces are somewhat intimidating. Like you get dropped into Breath of the Wild and you're like, oh my God, this, this world is so huge. Um, being a sound designer that has to manually work on every single region of that space gets very, very tedious and very, uh, you know, just a lot of labor in order to design spaces. Whereas this tool chain helps to automate all those spaces to give you kind of a physical baseline. And then if there are specific spaces that you want to tweak and uh, enhance because it's a very special region of your map, then you can go and have the sound designers just work on those particular places, as opposed to the entirety of the map, where it's probably auto-generated anyway. 
Um, well, you might as well auto-generate the acoustics for those spaces as well, uh, because you might it might be just like a road on the way to a mountain uh, where you're going to you know tackle the beast. Um, so it's the, the tool chain really helps to automate um, and, and like take a, away a lot of the tedium that a sound designer has to go through for these large, large levels. Yeah, a, an all-up challenge in game production these days is content, like the cost and the labor that goes into content creation. And really, um, how do you arrange things so that you put time on content creation in areas that matter for the story more and leave the rest on its own? Like it, it extends across all domains, visual and audio. So definitely within the audio domain, I think we are very focused on solving that problem, like Noel mentioned. All right. So yeah, I think we are all very excited to um, have learned from you both today. And uh, we want to ask if you have a call for the community and also, you know, how can people find out about this? How can people actually experience what you all are working on? So I'll say the the best way to learn about what we're doing right now is if you go to the website, aka.ms slash acoustics, which is a short link for um, a landing page where you can get all the latest information about Project Acoustics and the recent developments. And then uh, we will be doing a joint talk with audio folks at Epic Games, um, talking about Metasounds and some uh, development that we've been doing with Epic Games, um, which we're really excited about. We're going to be doing a, uh, a talk at that conference, at an, a conference called XFest, which is coming up, I believe, in May. So those are really good places to to learn about what we're what we've been cooking lately. And if if someone is interested on in the technical and research aspects of this, that's you can go to the Project Triton page, aka.ms/triton. Okay, awesome, guys. Can you share one piece of advice that really helped you in your career? Can, I'm going to share two. That's um, very generous. Thank you. So, <laughs> yeah, um, they're very generic. They have nothing to do with audio. But um, a guy that I worked with when I when I was an intern at Microsoft back in '91. Um, you know, when you're an intern, you're like overwhelmed. You're trying to like figure out how to write code and all this stuff. And and at Microsoft, there's so much code around that you can use as reference. But this this uh, Sage uh, developer told me at one point. He said, "If you're going to copy code, copy good code." Um, and I'm all for code reuse, but like you you don't want to get yourself in trouble by like copying some bad code around because it'll just keep propagating. And so that was the first piece of advice, and I kind of stuck with it um, over my career. And the second one is actually advice from my wife, who I did meet at Microsoft. Um, she's no longer at Microsoft, but um, she has this advice that it's 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 more important uh, who you work for than it is what you work on. Um, I've been lucky to have great managers at Microsoft, but um, you know if you're not if you're working for somebody who doesn't appreciate what you're doing, um, you're not going to be happy even if you're working on the best project in the world. So those are the pieces of advice that that I would give. Mine is actually connected to Knowles, but it's I guess it's more for you know, students or folks trying to build a career on the research or technical side of things, but maybe it generalizes. But as you build a career, you know, you run into many, many different metrics for success of all kinds, and it can frankly become a bit bewildering. 
as to what do you focus on. And what's worked for me is to just focus on the act of creation. Just focus on making something that people around you are excited about building with you and the people who use it derive joy from. And that's been a basis of a very fulfilling career for me. So I hope it works for you as well. Really, I think it's the process of going end-to-end on something rather than the thing, right? Because again, it's a, it's going end-to-end puts you in touch with the people who use it and also gets other people involved. Like this Project Acoustics thing and Knowles and his team's involvement, it's exactly that. It's, it, it matters. It, it's a smaller weight. Um, it's a smaller factor that we're building Triton. It's a bigger factor that how much all of us wake up excited to do this thing and with each other. Really, it is. And it's, it's funny, like, I wouldn't have said that. My younger version 10 years ago would not have said that. I was like, I want to crack some hard problem. But really, no. <laughs> Happiness is in, is in this stuff, for sure. And, you know, again, you hear these things, but they mean differently as, as, as time goes on. They, they definitely gain deeper meaning. Okay, well, on this positive note and on this wise note, um, I'd like to thank you, Noah and Nikunj, for being part of uh, today's episode. Um, thank you so much for your time talking to us. We've learned a ton and and more. Um, and yeah, thanks again. And hopefully we'll get to meet you in person sometime in the future, maybe even in 2022 at one of the mentioned conferences. What you guys do is is amazing. Um, I listen to your guys' podcasts, and I'm constantly inspired by the conversations that you guys have, and and just the love for immersive audio is is pretty obvious. Um, and so I, I appreciate what you guys are doing. Yeah, I'd, I'd second that. It's a big service to the community. So thanks, guys, for for running this show, and thanks for inviting us for sure. <laughs> this is really fun. Thank you, guys. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash immersive audio podcast. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell, Bjorn Jacobson, and Monica Bowles. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott, Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit immersiveaudiopodcast.com to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.